0: I'm Seth Cropsey, uh, director of uh, Hudson's Center for American Sea Power, and senior fellow at Hudson. I will be brief now and then a little bit verbose later. Um, my honor and pleasure is to introduce Congressman Forbes, the keynote speaker this morning. Randy Forbes represents Virginia's 4th Congressional District which, in a special election, chose him to fill a vacancy caused by his predecessor's death, and has subsequently re-elected him seven times. He is chairman of the House Armed Services Committee's Sea power and Projection Forces Subcommittee. In this position, Congressman Forbes is responsible for the research and development, acquisition, and sustainment of Navy and Marine programs. He's also the House of Representatives point man for the Air Force's bomber and tanker fleets. Besides Congressman Ford's programmatic responsibilities, he takes an active and thoughtful interest in the question that undergirds programs that would be strategy. Mr. Ford's service to his constituents is no less a service to his nation. And it is an honor to introduce him today. I'll say more about the panel members who are speaking and have some remarks following Representative Forbes. Would you please join me in welcoming Randy Forbes?
1: Seth, thank you and thank all of you for being here. I want to also uh, expressly thank the Hudson Institute for the good work that they uh, do and for um, this report. And also certainly want to thank uh, Brian and Seth and Tim for, for your work on the report. You've got a great panel here, including ron and bob and um, i know that you're anxious to get to them and listening to this expertise because i listen to all of them and try to assimilate uh, their thoughts on these subjects over and over again but been asked today to speak briefly about the continuing case for aircraft carriers but I'm going to put that off just like Seth said he was going to talk about some of the panelists later. I'm going to let the panelists talk about this report because I think it will address some of those questions for you. But just to tell you that I'm not here today as someone who lives close to where aircraft carriers are built and therefore kind of have a particular interest there, but rather as the chairman of the Sea Power and Projection Forces Subcommittee because I will tell you we look nationally at why aircraft carriers or any other platform might be important to us as a nation and I certainly welcome uh, the questioning that we're having there because I think every time we ask those questions and kind of peel a little bit onion back, we get better and better solutions for what we need to defend uh, the country. I I don't think there are many people who would disagree that we need carriers today. Um, I think all you have to do is look at the Middle East and what we saw with the USS George H.W. Bush, where for 54 days that was our campaign essentially against ISIL and probably uh, no alternative we have today provides the same kind of flexibility, range of Uh, capabilities and same degree of presence and deterrence and warfighting capability in a single package as our aircraft carriers do. Uh, Perhaps Admiral Moore put it best when he said, we're an 11-carrier Navy in a 15-carrier world, and that was in 2013 before ISIL and South China Sea and Russia have done many of the things that they've done to make everybody a little bit concerned about what's happening around the world. So the real debate that you'll see today, the real debate perhaps we need to have as a nation, is what's the role of the aircraft carrier tomorrow? And I'm not talking about tomorrow in 2015, but I'm talking about tomorrow five years down the road, 10 years down the road, the tomorrows that come 20 years down the road, and the tomorrows that come 40 years down the road. Our subcommittee has been somewhat at the center of that debate for years, and as I mentioned, we welcome these opinions and the discussions that take place. And we try to get a variety of opinions. In June, um, I sat down with Jerry Hendricks, who's a well-known critic of aircraft carriers. We went to, in July, to the Naval War College and had the Halsey Alpha Group tell us some of their ideas, which are a little bit different than, you know, what uh, uh, some thinkers might have around the country. We spent time with Admiral Manazar looking at what the air carrier wing, um, I mean, the carrier air wing should look like um, as we move down the road. Uh, We value all those inputs. And we don't know all the answers, but we believe we at least know the questions. And the questions are going to be, um, what do we need our carriers to do in the future? Which I think is a major question we have to ask. And what capabilities are those carriers are going to need to do to be able to accomplish those missions? I think that Brian, Seth, and Tim's report seeks to answer those questions, and they do it in the right way. Because just from the title, you can tell two important things. The first one is, how do we look at the carrier and its air wing in a joint context? The second thing is looking at the carrier's role in a high-end conflict. The first part of that's important because you have to look at the capabilities that other forces like land-based aircraft can provide but you also need to look at the threats to other forces like missile attacks on air bases to assess the carrier's relative strengths and weaknesses. In looking at the carrier's role in a high-end conflict, that's important because in an AT, AD challenges, A 2 AD challenges are raising legitimate questions about the carrier's role. For example, how deep and how and for how long can it penetrate into denied contested zones? What roles will it play? What are the targets for its air wing? That's important because there are a lot of competing priorities and other things we need uh, for the high-end fight. Flight. So the carrier needs to have a major role in those scenarios. And as the authors argue, it should have an important role. But as they also argue, only by altering course can the Navy ensure that the carrier strike group's contribution to the joint forces remains relevant to the nation's need and future war fighting requirements. That's a debate we need to have and we need to look at. Uh, The air carrier wing does have some capability questions. Uh, Have we over-optimized for permissive environments uh, that we saw in the 90s into 2000s? Does the air wing need additional things like ISR and refueling? And perhaps one of the most glaring questions that we have to ask is the long-range penetrating strike capability that we need from our carriers. That's why we believe UCLASS has an opportunity to fill that gap, as many of you know. That's why our committee has been uh, rather committed to making sure that we measure twice and um, cut once when it comes to what we do for UCLASS. We think we're going to see that moving. And once we have decided exactly what those requirements are, uh, then we need to move forward with that in a very fast way. Let me close by telling you this. With all the questions that you will have today and you'll talk about today. There's one that I suspect you will not talk about, one that I don't think we're talking about enough across our country. It's a word that sometimes seems a little clichéish, but I think it's an important word. When we look at the Asia-Pacific area and what we're going to be doing in there, one of the things that come up oftentimes when we look at our competitor China over there is the word destiny. And they love to talk about destiny, as they should, because they believe they have a thousand years of destiny that they can talk about. I think one of the strategic mistakes we may make for those who believe strongly in national defense in this country is we don't talk enough about our destiny. And I'll tell you that because um, I had some time ago the opportunity to have lunch with Tony Blair. I've been invited to sit down and talk about national defense issues with him. And he made what I thought was some rather astute observations. He said, first of all, he said, I've probably seen terrorism and fighting as much as any world leader around the globe. And he said, in looking at all of that, he said, I come to the United States. And he said, I really love the United States. And I think about states like Indiana and Iowa and some of the Midwestern states that I've never visited. And he said, it has to happen that this morning people will be waking up all across those states. And they'll see a beautiful day. And they'll be going to work. And they'll be asking themselves this question, why should I care? what's going on in the Middle East, or why should I care what's going on in the Asia-Pacific area? And he said, I just have one answer for them, and that is, it's your destiny. And I think as you look at America, we are different than the rest of the world, and we shouldn't be afraid to say that. When I look at my friends in China, they love to say, we're a big country, and you're a small country. That's what they believe their destiny to be. That's not our destiny. Our destiny, and Tony Blair said this to me that day, he said, your destiny is to do good around the world. And America does good around the world. And so I would say to you today that more importantly than just whether we build another aircraft carrier or whether we get the right mix of our air carrier wing, that the reason what you're doing here today is so important and what all of you are doing is so important is because we have to get this right. Because because whether we like it or not, whether we want to talk about it or not, this nation does have a destiny to do good around the world. But we'll succeed only if we get the right answers to these very, very tough questions. So thank you for doing it. Thank you for letting me be here with you today.
0: Lawrence of Arabia, Prince Faisal, third son of Sharif bin Ali of Mecca and uh, played by Alec Guinness, for those of you who might have been watching recently, makes a early appearance. Faisal, Sharif Ali, uh, Lawrence's nominal and fictional boss, Harry Brighton and Lawrence himself, argue about tactics in defeating the Ottomans. The discussion turns to the source of British military power. Sheriff Ali, that's Omar Sharif, says, guns. Colonel Brighton says, discipline. Britain is powerful, says Prince Faisal, because it has a navy. Because of this, he says, the English go where they please, and strike where they please, And this makes them great. I think the Prince was on to something here. From Asia, to the subcontinent, to the Mediterranean, the entire Atlantic, and much of the Pacific, the Royal Navy's ships did the Crown and Parliament's bidding and transformed a medium-sized island in the North Sea into a global power. Rather than build a traditional empire, The U.S. Navy, for a century now, has been an instrument of constructing today's international order, whose important elements include free navigation of the world's oceans, free trade, the inviolability of territorial sovereignty and democracy. For the past seven decades, the single most important instrument of U.S. naval power has been its ability to accomplish both its peace and wartime missions with the assistance of air power that, to paraphrase Prince Faisal, can go where it wants and operate independent of basing agreements. The aircraft carrier delivers a large portion of this power. Hudson Institute's Center for American Sea Power Study reaffirms the usefulness of seaborne naval aviation delivered by large aircraft carriers in war and in peace. This reaffirmation is needed because the aircraft carrier is, as it has been since aircraft first took off and landed on a US ship at sea, being questioned again. The cost of aircraft carriers, uh, new weapons against which it must defend itself, and the shifting role for US naval power are the chief causes of today's skepticism about the future of aircraft carriers and their execution of foreseeable naval strategy. This questioning is healthy and I believe that it's productive. Hudson's study addresses these questions with arguments that my colleagues Brian McGrath and Tim Walton will speak to, and I'd like to take just a moment to recognize and thank them for the exceptional, exceptional amount of time and work they put into this report. The study acknowledges that challenges at sea to naval aviation are changing, and it offers ideas about how aircraft carrier strike groups can be strengthened and defended as potential adversaries seek to nullify naval aviation's power. If it were not powerful, it would not be the object of an adversary's calculations. It's important to understand that skepticism over the aircraft carrier and the associated combatants that make up a carrier strike group, skepticism that we are hearing today recapitulates doubts that have been expressed and answered by operational success for decades. Hudson's report demonstrates the questions have been asked and answered repeatedly. The questions change, but the answers speak for themselves from peacetime operations in the Pacific to strikes against ISIS in the Middle East. I will briefly sum up the debate that's gone on, because I think it's important to understand that what we're looking at today is not new. In the years after World War I, Kelly's greatest doubters came from within. The battleship Navy viewed carriers askance. Airplanes were useful for scouting, it was argued, and might be launched individually from ships, but carriers were too poorly armored, planes too short in range, and land-based naval air was the only option because it offered larger combat aircraft with greater range and payload capacity. So it was argued. These objections crumbled in the face of the Pacific's vastness. European powers might use land-based aviation because warfare on the continent was well, continental. But projecting combat power at the other end of the Pacific meant aircraft carriers. Both the US and Japan built stronger, faster aircraft carriers and equipped them with increasingly capable combat aircraft. The destruction of U.S. battleships at Pearl Harbor leaned the Navy more heavily toward aircraft carriers. Lieutenant Colonel Duhamel's aircraft carrier launched raid on Tokyo, and the defeat of Japan at Midway Island in 1942 helped dissipate doubt about the carrier's usefulness in combat. They were employed extensively as part of the campaign that rolled back Japanese power to the homeland's doorstep. At the end of World War II, the US had 97 aircraft carriers of one kind or another in commission. The operational achievements of, of naval aviation in World War II did not end the debate over aircraft carriers. You might say it started it. Alexander D. Siversky, the founder of Republic Aviation, argued the carrier-launched planes' payloads made them inferior to the larger weapons-carrying ability of land-based air. Combat experience told another story. It showed that where heavier bombers were more effective against fixed land installations, they were much less useful, actually ineffective, against naval forces. Carrier launched planes performed this mission with notable success in World War II. The Korean War, improved the complementary relationship between ground-based and seaborne aviation. US and British carriers bombed targets in North Korea for the month it took the Air Force to construct bases in South Korea. As the war progressed, it became clear that heavier bombers were less effective than naval air in close air support missions, and against such targets as bridges and mobile units. When skeptics offered that carriers were limited to propeller aircraft, the Navy built larger carriers capable of launching and recovering jets that could eventually carry the then large payload of a nuclear weapon. A 1958 proceedings article argued that emerging missile technology combined with reconnaissance could sink carriers. Carriers' use in the Vietnam War were prepared for this and then some. Carrier-based aircraft conducted strike, anti-air warfare, and reconnaissance missions. The carrier-launched F-8, surpassed the combat record of every other U.S. aircraft, achieving a 19-to-3 kill ratio against MiG-17 and MiG-21 interceptors. Carriers offered safety from enemy attack, where fixed U.S. ground bases were vulnerable to North Vietnamese, And the Viet Cong. In 1966, Secretary of Defense McNamara testified that, and this is a quote from him, although the investment to procure aircraft carriers is substantial, our experience in Vietnam and recent study results indicate that total costs to procure, support, and defend overseas land-based tactical air forces are comparable to total costs of carrier task forces of equal capability. End of quote. Construction of the nuclear-powered Nimitz began two years later. The aircraft carrier has been debated since its, its existence. The ship itself has also evolved, adopting new hull designs, shipboard systems, employment concepts, carrier air wings, and the concept idea and operation of a strike group. There are many reasons to believe that additional changes, such as the composition of the air wing, development of submersible drones, advanced surface warfare technologies, unmanned aerial drones, will meet the challenges of anti-access and de- area denial, cost, and risk that are the subject of concern about the carrier's future today. The US has a record of accepting prudent risk to defend itself. Guam today, Bristles with military capability and abundant logistics projected meagerly by anti-missile defenses. Yet it lies well within the striking distance of Chinese military power. So summing up here, today's questions recapitulate criticisms that have been made and answered for 70 years. The history of technology and warfare is a search for survivable, survivable lethality. The search progresses along two paths, the offensive and the defensive. Sort of extraordinary and indefensible enemy success in cyber warfare, and this would affect all of America's fighting forces, nothing suggests the criticisms of the aircraft carrier strike group will be more telling in the foreseeable future than they have been in the recent past. Unlike the British, There is no other democratic state to which the United States can relinquish its unsought role as leader of the international order. Hudson Institute study shows that aircraft carriers, strengthened by recommended changes, which are important here, will remain critical if the US is to continue to possess what Prince Faisal described as a source of British military power, the ability to go where they please and strike where they please. Now it is my honor to introduce the rest of the, uh, part of the rest of the panel. But I've spoken long enough, um, and I think I'm going to defer to Brian here, and uh, let's, as they say, get on with the show.
2: Good day. I'm going to uh, move quickly through my slides to try to get us back on on track. Um, If you haven't had a chance to read this study in its entirety, I uh, would recommend that you spend all of your waking moments for the next three days doing so. Um, I'm going to try to hit some of the high points here. It's worthwhile to understand where the study came from. I had a debate in January at the Naval Academy with a man named Jerry Hendricks. He took a uh, sort of anti-carrier position. I took a pro-carrier position. But I was left unsatisfied by the outcome of the debate because I thought there was more necessary. I felt that there was a story that wasn't getting told, and that was that the aircraft carrier, which is being um, criticized by an unholy alliance of carrier critics, who exist and always have, and a very garrulous Chinese defense press who feeds them with all manner of threat, um, had, were occupying the playing field essentially on their own on this question of high-end warfare. I didn't think the Navy was doing a good enough job defending the aircraft carrier as an instrument in the war that we cannot f- afford to fight, and the war that we cannot afford to lose. And that's why this study came into being. We have some eye test uh, slides here today, because I thought it would be a little bigger, but I hope you can make do. Um, summary, uh, the executive summary. We make the case that uh, air power, sea-based air power rec- remains critical to national security across the spectrum of operations, um, including uh, deterrence, the conduct, and the winning of great power war, high-end A2AD warfare. This is important to note because, as I said earlier, I don't think the Navy has done a very good job of defending the carrier in that atmosphere. Secondly, we recognize the value and importance of periodic reevaluation of the efficiency and efficacy of the aircraft carrier. Senate Armed Services Committee has directed the Navy to go out and look at this this is good the navy should have to on a periodic uh, level defend its assumptions and its presumptions we happen to believe that they will probably reach the same conclusions that they have reached in the past as seth uh, described earlier Seth did a good good job about talking about history, so I won't spend a whole lot of time on it. This slide is designed to show you a stylized uh, impression we had of uh, the degree to which the aircraft carrier has been valued uh, across time, um, as uh, Seth indicated in the late 1950s, the early part of the Kennedy administration. Um, Mr. Um, um, who was his name, the Secretary of Defense? McNamara. McNamara wanted to uh, cut the carrier force to nine. Lewis P. Johnson wanted to cut the carrier force in 1950 to four. Operational requirements came up then that demonstrated the power of, uh, or the uh, the, um, wisdom of not following those uh, prescriptions. We think we're in a trough right now. We think we're uh, at a low end. Um, uh, in carrier acceptance, and to some extent it is because of the cost of the carrier, to some it is be- some extent it is because of the threats, um, and to some extent it's because I don't think a good counter-argument to the critics has come out um, recently. A second reason we spent a lot of time on history in this um, uh, report, was to show you that over time, the Navy has, in fact, thought very deeply about alternative aircraft carrier designs. Uh, we uh, broke out three in, uh, in our research. Um, the CBV, uh, the, the last one on the right, um, sounds a lot like the uh, Queen Elizabeth class, conventional 60,000 tons, something of that nature. Um, ultimately, though, in each case, the operational requirements uh, overcame the sense that something smaller and something cheaper should be purchased. It really came to be in the, uh, uh, alternative, the analysis of alternatives that led to the Ford class. This graphic shows the 75 different designs, both uh, conventional, nuclear-powered, small, large, stealthy, non-stealthy, that the Navy looked at against a series of operational requirements. Um, I show this to you only because I want you to walk out of this room believing that the Navy takes the mandate to study this question very, very seriously, and that they keep reaching the same conclusion um, is a, is the result of in-depth work and solid analysis it isn't that there are navalists with aircraft carrier models in their bathtubs that they just want to keep building big nuclear powered carriers we build them because they work across the spectrum of deterrence presence deterrence and war fighting In the next couple of slides, I want to turn from history to the the present day to discuss the role of the carrier in uh, modern joint warfare. In considering this, I ask you to think about the carrier the way that we think about the carrier, which is as part of a larger combat system. The carrier strike group, supported by land-based air, space, and uh, land-based ISR, is a combat system optimized to project power and to control the seas. Often, when people analyze the aircraft carrier, they take it out of its system. And we get, to, to, uh, to portray this a little bit more cartoonishly than is maybe fair, we get the sense that the aircraft carrier is steaming deep into the heart of the conflict, uh, setting up sanctuary, and um, flying 24-hour flight ops. That's not a fair or appropriate way to look at the combat system that is the carrier strike group and how that combat system would conduct itself in a high-end A-2-AD conflict. The carrier and the strike group provide key capabilities across the spectrum of conflict, as I've said. The Navy's gotten a lot of mileage, and uh, Mr. Forbes just mentioned it. Um, Every admiral who goes up to the hill talks about the 54 days. That's great. But if all we needed to do was sit off the shores of third world countries from 200 miles and plink targets for 12 hours a day, we wouldn't need what we have today. We need what we have today because the war fighting requirements on the high end drive that, drives nuclear power. Believe it or not, it drives sortie rate. The kind of war that we lay out a little bit later in this this, uh, discussion values a lot of airplanes in the air at one time. To have a lot of airplanes in the air at one time, you have to be able to carry a lot of airplanes. You have to be able to accommodate them. You have to be able to fix them and maintain them. You have to be able to shoot them and recover them. All of these, all of these requirements drive you back, again, to the larger carrier. In addition, we face challenges, and we're going to go through some of these uh, in this discussion. These A2AD systems are going to get more difficult, and they're going to proliferate throughout the Pacific. The Chinese aren't building islands for tourism. They're building them to extend their defensive perimeter. They want to push us even further back, OK? China is developing an a, a, a access-enabled power projection force. This is something Jim Thomas from CSBA likes to talk about, um, in which uh, uh, logistics ships, amphibious assault ships, carriers, nuclear-powered submarines operate together. Uh, we saw last month how China sent an amphibious task force through the Aleutians. I think that's a small sign of things to come. In addition to the threat... Our concepts of operations and the way we look and have been operating carriers for the last 25 years, and that's all I feel competent to really talk about because that's my experience, um, that sort of caught is brittle when you think about how an aircraft carrier would fight in this high-end A2-AD conflict. Um, Our forces face the uh, likelihood of structured attacks by PLA missiles and aircraft, and Chinese assets are ringed by uh, increasingly capable air defense systems. Additionally, the United States has enjoyed perceived advantages in a number of important military technologies, especially undersea warfare and also air superiority and secure C4ISR. I don't think we can count on those superiorities staying at the level they are today. The gap will continue to close. Couple reasons. One, technology is international now, and two, to the extent that technology is international, it's civilian and not military, generally. Um, looking at our assessment of the threat and the needs of the joint force, we reached a few conclusions. The first, in order to deter fight and win high-end warfare against a peer competitor, the joint force will continue to need the capabilities that the carrier uniquely brings in terms of power projection from the sea, sea control, and surveillance. Equally important, there are a number of critical warfighting requirements necessary to the joint force, and more importantly, to a theory of victory for the joint force, that would go largely unmet or dramatically under-resourced in the absence of carrier air power. What then are these potential deficits? Um, when we talk about uh, contributions that will become critical, we're talking about a, a war with China uh, in which first island chain air bases have been attacked, and they will be attacked. If you think an aircraft carrier moving at 40 miles an hour is vulnerable, what well, then is a land-based airfield? Those Bases will be attacked. They have the ability to reconstitute. The Air Force is working on that, and they're putting a lot of thinking on how to become more resilient. Someone, though, is going to have to provide TAC air inside 1,000 miles after opportunity has been gained. We can't just steam the aircraft carrier and the surface force and the whole Navy and P8s into a dense A2AD environment. We have to create opportunities. Long-based bombers will do that, Uh, uh, long-range bombers will do that. The submarine force will do that, and do that very well. Cyber warfare will do some of that. But we will create opportunities where the aircraft carrier and its tactical air will then fulfill needs to the Joint Force, like ISR escort, like refueling escort, like bomber escort, like close air support. Things we are going to need to dislodge a, a, um, an opponent who has the advantage, at least in the early stages. Now I want to come to the most controversial part of our uh, study, and that is we go through a very exhaustive process of of handing critics material, we call it an effects chain analysis. But we felt that in order to be intellectually uh, rigorous about this project, we had to recognize that those criticisms are valid. Those criticisms of the carrier, its strike group, its air wing, its support organizations, are have to be dealt with. And so we've raised them. And some of the ones that we brought up are worth worthy of a little bit of a dive. This slide—it's going to be difficult for you to see—but I can describe on the left, the green line shows that if we have six aircraft carrier air wings that are relying solely on their own ability to refuel, no Air Force refueling, we can generate 32 total strike aircraft 1,500 miles away in an uncontested environment six aircraft carriers to get 32 with today's air wing. If you add uh, Air Force tanking to the mix, those aircraft carriers get you 226 strikers. Um, that's current ability. Again, it's uncontested an uncontested environment, but it shows the power of having fuel available. Our aircraft carriers don't have a lot of organic fuel. We do rely on the Air Force. Somewhere between 30 and 32 and 226, um, with uh, Navy refueling, is a reasonable place to shoot for. On the right is uh, how that, that number of uh, aircraft that are able to expend ordnance at 1,500 miles, how that increases in terms of pounds of ordnance. Um, Six aircraft carriers with Air Force refueling get you over 3,100,000 pounds of ordnance in a month. Six aircraft carriers operating on their own refueling their own planes get you 224,000 pounds. Another vulnerability we have is mass, the ability to get a lot of planes in the air. That green line at the top is uh, what we assessed at the ability of the PLA to surge aircraft out to 400 nautical miles from their shores. Uh, The red line is where they can, is out to 600 miles. Um, And what we have uh, shown you uh, with the yellow and the blue lines are uh, how many aircraft we can generate with Air Force tanking from that number of carriers. uh, and how many we can generate out to 400 miles using organic tanking? The bottom line is that with six aircraft carriers and air force tanking, we can put more—I mean, it's fourth and fifth generation fighters—in the air out to uh, at, at that 600-mile range than they can. You need mass. You need to be able to generate mass in this warfare because they have a lot coming at us. This brings Outer Air Battle AAW back into the picture in a way it hasn't been for a long time, which means high performance, air dominance fighter aircraft. It's not going to be good enough to have a fighter operating from the aircraft carrier that is a result of compromise with the ground attack mission. We're going to need Outer Air Battle Air Dominance again. Another uh, uh, vulnerability that needs to be discussed is logistics. What this graph shows, uh, the red line is the number of uh, CLF refueling ships we have, which I think is is 19. Um, The blue line is our ability to uh, uh, support forces from 3,000 miles away the yellow line is our ability to support forces from 2,000 miles away. The bottom line is that if we have between five and six carriers operating in an environment, every single oil the Navy owns has to be devoted to those carriers or the carrier strike groups. Every single one in the Navy from the entire world has to be devoted to that fight if they can lead to support from 2,000 to 3,000 miles away. We've laid bare a number of vulnerabilities. One of the vulnerabilities we talked about earlier was the bull con ops. We have suggested some new con ops, or some additional con ops that the Navy needs to think about. One of them is this concept of pulse power operations. Um, The Navy has grown comfortable with what I uh, refer to after a conversation with a friend the other day as the Mike Tyson concept. We get in there close, nobody can stop us, and we pound away. We need to develop a little bit of a Floyd Mayweather concept here, um, which is uh, the the ability to generate power, the ability to do it at the time and place and for uh, an appropriate operational duration, and then move away. We have the sense that gaining sanctuary is the sine qua non of carrier operations. Against an opponent like China, we may never gain sanctuary. We may just gain opportunity, and we have to get comfortable with that. We have to get comfortable with gaining and exploiting uh, uh, opportunity that, it, that could be fleeting. The second um, concept we want to talk about is integrated multi-carrier operations. Most of the first, I see a lot of aviation room. We've op- many of us have operated with two or three carriers at a time. Generally speaking, what happens is, hey, you got today we'll take it tomorrow, or you get these targets, we'll take those targets. We're talking about taking four and five carriers and taking those airings and truly integrating them in order to generate the mass over target, the mass in the air required to deal with a true peer, a near-peer competitor with peer characteristics. If you've seen the movie Ender's Game, and you think about those kids in that laboratory, in that virtual environment, Um, We need something like that in order to truly think about and work multi-carrier integrated operations. An environment where multiple carrier staffs, multiple air wing staffs, multiple fighter COs, um, multiple carrier COs get together and think deeply about how you would integrate air power. The way we do it now, if you had four or five carriers operating, the Air Force, who writes the air plan, would basically see each of them as an airfield. And they would then task those aircraft carriers accordingly. They wouldn't think of that air power as a unit of issue that can fight as an integrated system. We have to develop that in concert with the Air Force so they understand it and can employ it that way. Finally, uh, a little bit of a hobby horse of mine, similarly the battle, truly integrated operations if, uh, with the Marine Corps, um, ensure that, so that you could use Marine Corps aircraft more effectively for um, at-sea missions, and so that the aircraft carrier can become uh, more of a weapon and more of a, a support force to uh, larger um, uh, land-sea interface kinds of operations that would potentially be under the command of the Joint Maritime Force Component Commander. I'm going too long. I'm going to try to blow through this. Um, Aircraft carrier itself has problems. We don't operate them very well. We, we, we have gotten out of the habit of what we did in the 1980s, which was to shut radios off and operate in an MCON environment. That is changing. The Navy is working on that. We are beginning to do better, but we have to be able to do it really, really well. That's not going to keep us from being found, but it's going to provide fewer pieces of the puzzle. There are other things that the aircraft carrier can do that can mess with the uh, ability of the other guy to find us. Those exist at levels of classification that are beyond my clearance and probably some of yours. The carrier um, can, in fact, field better ship self-defense weapons. There's so much electrical power generated by by the Ford-class aircraft carrier. It is a a great place to think about putting um, a self-defense laser probably one of the first places we might want to put it uh, when it comes to the fleet. Surface ship torpedo defense. Carrier is a great place for that in in addition to uh, large amphibs. Including recoverability. We have to take for granted that the carrier will suffer damage. It will get hit in a big war against a big opponent. We have to figure out how to fix it. We have to get better at it. We have to pre-stock pieces of sheet steel in places where we can uh, get to it quickly. We have to be able to um, be resilient. The carrier has to become more resilient because it is going to be uh, more closely targeted. The air wing, um, increased striking range, longer range aircraft, more stealthy, longer range striking aircraft. Sea control aircraft, We, we um, the, the carrier air wing Got rid of the S3. Um, in my sense of a high-end conflict, I have a sense that there would be a lot of sea control missions necessary for that air wing, especially early. New munitions and sensors, especially as a way to bridge the gap between our current generation of fighters and a next generation fighter. Um, this is a, sh- a graph that shows attrition. Wanna, I, I wanna, uh, Hopefully you'll be able to see it in the report. But the th- not the, the steepest line, but the second steepest line is 8.5% attrition. And 8.5% attrition a day for 30 days um, uh, is less than what Rand was using in their study that they just came out. I think they used 10% for their, their attrition. Um, that leaves you uh, your airline is at 60% of what it was. We don't have the industrial base to uh, uh, to replace aircraft that fast. We have to have, uh, we have to begin to build more aircraft to have them available so we can replace aircraft to attrition, loss to attrition. I'm going to stop here after this slide because we've gone too long. Um, other ships in the CSG are also a place that need to, uh, that need to improve. Surface combatants Need their, uh, need independent ISR so that the carrier isn't the only platform whose deck is used to generate the recognized air picture uh, surface picture for the group. Better surface borne ISR will not only serve the naval task force. Uh, More effectively, it will also make those surface ships more lethal. We need to figure out how to uh, reload VLS cells at sea, so that those ships don't have to come offline from where they are uh, projecting power and uh, exerting sea control. They can uh, come a little offline, not go 2,000 miles away, get their holes filled, get back in the fight as soon as possible. We already talked about uh, logistics. Don't have enough. Never you have enough, need more, okay? I'm going to start, stop right now, you want to just, Tim first? Okay, I'm going to start uh, with my study uh, co-lead here, Tim Walton uh, will present his part of the picture. You mentioned that the bios of all the here are included in the handouts. The bios of all the people here are included in the handouts.
3: Well, thank you very much to Brian and Seth for the opportunity to participate in this study, and thank you all for joining us today. Um, In order to keep us on schedule and to get to your questions, I'd like to quickly focus on a few points. Um, First, I I thought uh, Congressman Forbes and uh, Brian's and Seth's remarks were excellent. um, And I I think one of the points that's in this study, but uh, we haven't discussed as much to date, is how um, the Ford-class program is still suffering from the decisions made in 2002 by Secretary of Defense Donald Rumsfeld. As we see delays and cost growth in the Ford's advanced arresting gear, electromagnetic launch system, and other systems, we know the primary cause. a decision to pursue the aggressive incorporation of technology into a single ship, and the commensurate decision to pursue highly concurrent t- technology development and ship design while the carrier was being built. However, there's another straightforward reason for the cost growth in not only the ford but in many ships of the Nimitz class as well. And uh, I have a couple of slides that I'd like to, to show. Sorry, Brian. So here in the background, you, you can see uh, during the Nimitz class program, the average duration of construction of a single ship was 7 years, 10 months. And the average interval between the delivery of one ship and another was three years, nine months. The big exception is there in yellow. It was the period of two ship procurements during the Reagan administration, in which the average intervals were reduced to two years, 11 months. As we fast forward to the third class, the average planned uh, duration of construction and the average interval between the delivery of one ship and another is about two and a half years longer than in the Nimitz class. Time is money. And these long intervals in construction significantly increase cost, which as we look at the cost in both the Nimitz and the Ford class, is generally only decreased or stayed stable during the efficiencies generated by the two-year buys of the 1980s. As the the Navy and Congress consider potential alternatives to continuing with the Ford class, and potentially spending years and billions of dollars in resources to develop an alternate to the Ford class, The cost-saving power of serialized production should not be overlooked. When we find a design that works, we should stabilize it as much as possible and build it in numbers, even while continuing to pursue efficiencies in the construction of the ships. Second, I'd like to build off of Brian's earlier remarks uh, and comments on the air wing. Our study identified three key missions in which sea-based air power launched from the carrier confers special advantages. These are strike, air warfare and surveillance. Discussion of the U-Class program here on the Hill and elsewhere has sparked the debate on the need for an aircraft that provides either long-range strike or long-range and long-endurance range and long surveillance. Our study suggests both capabilities are necessary moving forward, either in the same aircraft or in different aircraft. Air warfare, though, is another mission that has received less attention. As Brian touched on, the carrier's contribution to air warfare is crucial to the joint force. The addition of the F-35C, EA-18G, and E-2D will play important roles in countering emerging threats with superior stealth, sensors, and jamming capabilities than the legacy force. However, as we compare the programmed force with emerging fifth generation threats, such as the T-50, J-20, and other adversary aircraft that will be developed in the next 20 years, the projected force runs into challenges. Interim options can be to introduce new sensors and weapons to current fighters, such as a longer-range air-to-air missile, or infrared search and tracking systems to our F-18s. Ultimately, however, supercruising, high-altitude, low-observable enemy fighters would be difficult to counter with the improvements to F-18s, F-35s, and NIFCO alone, and we will face increasingly superior, qualitatively superior enemy fighters. Thus, it's imperative that the force develop a future sixth generation fighter that can replace super hornets, be it manned or unmanned. The Navy has termed this prospective concept FAXX for Fighter Attack XX. As the Navy begins to analyze alternatives and as Congress reviews them, it's essential the program emphasizes a big F and a little a. There are other capabilities in the Navy and throughout the general force that can provide attack capabilities. However, there is a glaring projected gap for an air superiority fighter with much longer range, capable sensors, and a large capacity for weapons, both to support Navy sea control requirements, which will grow as Chinese sea control capabilities expand, and to enable other elements of the force to project bombers, such as long-range strike bombers. Lastly, as we concluded in our study, the carrier strike group faces major constraints and vulnerabilities that reduce its campaign utility to the joint force in high-threat scenarios, especially those involving china at the same time the joint force will likely need carrier strike groups to play a critical role in those various scenarios consequently those weaknesses must be addressed i'd also like to emphasize that our study does not foreclose pursuit of other promising capabilities that could play a greater role in the joint force and as technology changes especially aircraft design and capabilities and as threats evolve the role of carriers their quantity in the u.s fleet and their design should be rigorously re-examined. There should be a healthy debate within and among the services for the best solutions to the pressing operational problems we face. Consequently, it's my hope that this report stimulates discussion not only of the carrier or of the carrier as a system, but the joint force as a whole. For instance, we dedicate a significant portion of the report to the Combat Logistics Force. Improvement of the CLF and the ability to conduct VLS reload would not only aid the performance of the carrier strike group, but the entire Navy, and would perhaps improve the viability of attractive concepts and capabilities that increase the relative importance of non-carrier elements of the force. Over time, this can result in a force that leverages the best features of any access capabilities, in particular long-range missiles launched from land, sea, and air, and the best features of power projection forces, such as carriers, bombers, nuclear submarines, and surface combatants. As Brian mentioned, Jim Thomas of CSBA has a term for this hybrid force, an anti-access-enabled power projection force. And it may be what China is pursuing as they progressively develop the capabilities for global sea control while continuing to build on their considerable advantages in anti-access systems. I think our report clearly elucidates the role of the carrier in the joint force. So those in the US that question the carrier's utility should ask not, why do we have carriers, but rather, Why don't we have adequate long-range missiles? To conclude, the current trajectory of the carrier as a system is troubling. It does not adequately account for either the advances made by threats or the requirements of future joint-force warfighting. Without the types of changes we recommend in our report, the campaign value of U.S. carriers will decline, and it will have a grave effect on the U.S. ability to deter and defeat aggression. we must quickly change course. Thank you very much for your attention.
4: So I'd just like to uh, agree with a number of the points made in the paper and kind of footstomp a few of them. Uh, The first is, you know, the growing need for the carrier and carrier strike troop to conduct surveillance, air warfare, sea control, sea denial, and strike, but to do so in increasingly contested environments. Second. The carrier strike group's ability to provide some measure of sea control, when where needed, as well as to defend critical airlines of communication, is really is a key enabler of the joint force, and it's a that's an area that likely will grow in demand over time. I found a discussion in the paper about the need for multiple integrated uh, carrier strike group ops to generate sufficient mass, an in intriguing concept that I think needs uh, further exploration. I would uh, concur with the need for an expanded CLF force uh, underway of replenishment to include VL- VLS reloads. I think it's something we really need to do. As well as uh, the need for more cost-effective active defenses for the carrier and the carrier strike group, including things like high-power microwave, railgun, high-energy lasers. The one point I'd really, really like to emphasize, though, is the need for aircraft with significant in- significantly greater on-the-field combat radius for the carrier air wing. This is absolutely imperative. And it's something I'll get back to in a second. It's necessary, but not sufficient. So that's all the things I agree with for the most part. There's a few things I disagree with, or at least would uh, throw a cautionary flag on. The first is we need to be careful not to aim behind the target in terms of the threat environment. A lot of discussion in the paper about China's anti-ship cruise missiles, anti-ship ballistic missiles, the PLAF and PLAN, fighters, the numbers and capability, is really about things we are doing now or in the very, very near future. But today we are literally uh, building the carrier air wing of 2025 and 2035, so we need to think through what the threat environment and how that's going to change by 2025, 2035. Second, there's an assumption in the paper about that land-based air power is necessarily at high risk, and thus a growing demand for carrier aviation. Uh, While that's certainly true within the first island chain, it's far less true in the second island chain and beyond. what that suggests is the Air Force really could and, and should shift to longer-range, more survivable aircraft like they're doing with the long-range strike bomber, but then also potentially more unmanned long-range aircraft like a follow-on to the, uh, the Reaper or the RQ-170, sort of a stealthy Reaper. With those types of aircraft, for example, land-based air-refuelable UCAS might well be operationally superior to manned carrier aviation for many of the missions that are discussed, um, and while carrier-based a carrier-based UCAS, or UCAS would be a very attractive capability. A land-based UCAS could potentially provide that capability with uh, you know, more range and payload at less cost. So the question that really needs to be asked, and I'll get to this in a second, is if that's true, if a land-based, unrefueled, UCAS-like platform could really do what the carrier air wing does, what is the value of the carrier? What is the unique energies it provides relative to land-based uh, aircraft? And I'll get to that in a second. Um, As many of you know, I've uh, followed the discussion about UCAS and UCLASS very closely over the last several years. Uh, And there's a discussion in the paper about uh, surveillance privilege or surveillance-optimized unmanned aircraft or a strike-optimized one. And that really is a false dichotomy. Uh, With a balanced design, a single aircraft can really perform both missions. An aircraft with, say, an 8 to 10 hours of unrefueled endurance, which can be 24 to 48 hours of refueled endurance, would offer a dramatic improvement in penetrating surveillance for the joint force and for the carrier strike group. That same aircraft could have a combat radius off the tanker or from the carrier of 1,500 to 2,000 nautical miles while carrying a 4,000-pound payload, which is roughly three times that of the F-35C and five times that of the F-18EF. Now, that's a game changer for the expanding the ISR and strike reach of the carrier air wing. And that's the type of thing we need to think about. Um, There's a few minor things we may get talking to about some of the concepts. I've some of them interesting Um, issues about, um, like, the escorting uh, long-range bomber, potentially. You know, but obviously the carrier airwaves need longer range and stealthier aircraft in order to to perform that mission. And I I like the idea of the pulse combat power. Um, That's sort of writing off the uh, a large class of targets, mobile relocatable and time-sensitive targets, that if you can only pulse at certain periods, you might not be there when you need to. So there's value in persistence. And I'm not sure if the carrier airway needs to give up on that persistence, and they just need to do it differently. So, for example, with uh, unmanned aircraft. So then lastly, three dogs that didn't bark that I think should've, or th- things that could've been uh, standing in the paper. Um, the first is when talking about the carrier airway the big focus is on range, and more range. And while that is absolutely necessary, it's by no means sufficient. To operate in the future airspace defended by land and sea-based networked integrated air defenses, it's absolutely essential to increase the survivability of carrier-based aircraft. And a big ingredient of that is broadband, all aspect, radar uh, cross-section reduction. You've got to have it. So in addition to longer-range aircraft in the carrier air wing, they have to be more survivable. Uh, and that part of that is stealth. Um, in that discussion about, okay, let's say in the future you had this stealthy uh, uh, refueled carrier UCAS and you had a stealthy land-based uh, UCAS. What advantages would the carrier have over the land-based one? It would have some, and I think they're significant. You, you know, you don't have to ask mother may I in terms of political access to operate from bases. You don't have to have diplomatic constraints on how you can use your aircraft. Basing flexibility itself simplifies a whole host of overflight issues and logistics issues. Then that mobility of the carrier complicates the adversary's defensive challenge. So, for all those reasons, I think there's, a, there's really a synergy or a complement Uh, role for both carrier-based and land-based ISR and strike platforms, whether manned or unmanned. And lastly, um, and Tim touched on this a little bit, I think we need to think differently about carrier aviation roles and missions. Is four squadrons of multi-role fighters really the right answer? Certainly that's not reflected in the history of the carrier air wing, which has had very diverse uh, um, types of aircraft for specific missions. So um, we need to think about, rather than multi-role fighters, whether manned or manned, unmanned, a, you know, a split deck. So f- think about, for example, man fighters, an FX with no A, um, doing defensive counter-air and offensive counter-air, and then a penetrating stealthy UCAS as a primary surface and land attack arm. Um, just, I think that's some food for thought about, you know, kind of moving away from sort of the one-size-fits-all multi-role fighter to more of an air superiority aircraft, manned or unmanned, and a attack aircraft with a manned or unmanned. That's it for me.
2: <laughs> I'm a work from the Congressional Research Service on the Naval Issues Analyst at that organization, and uh, the author shared with me a copy of the report a couple of days ago, allowed me to read it so that I could prepare these comments today. Uh, CRS, as I think a lot of you know, is a nonpartisan org- organization that works to um, Uh, achieve objectivity in its analysis. And very importantly, CLS does not make recommendations. It discusses issues, it puts out options, it does not then say which option it thinks should be chosen. And so consistent with that, it's not my role here today to support or oppose any of the recommendations that are in the Hudson Institute report, but rather to simply make some analytical comments uh, on the report that might be of help to readers as they go through it. Uh, The report and today's panel discussion are timely in my view for at least two reasons. One is that a potential high-end conflict with China has become a central issue in US defense planning in fact earlier this week in another room in this building we had a briefing by Rand of the new Rand report on the uh, US China military scorecard that represented in effect a briefing about uh, the challenge at least as Rand sees it and evaluates it and meetings like this one present perspectives on what the US response to that might be and this is the Hudson Institute's perspective on that so that's why One reason why this report and this event here today can be considered timely. Another is that the Navy right now is in the midst of a study that it has committed uh, to Congress to conduct on alternatives to today's nuclear-powered large-deck carriers. That's a study that is mentioned in my own CRS report on the uh, Ford uh, class program. One of the points that the report makes is that the European theater, including the Mediterranean, uh, is reemerging as an important uh, operating area for the U.S. Navy. It kind of went away as a major operating hub for the Navy during the post-Cold War era. Uh, But it does now appear, to some people at least, like the post-Cold War era is over, and that we have entered a new and as yet unnamed strategic era that uh, features, among other things, uh, renewed great power competition, and that as one reflection of that, Uh, we may need to pay more attention to having naval forces, including uh, perhaps aircraft carriers in the Mediterranean. The report focuses on this in part because if you want to maintain more of a carrier presence in the Med or Europe generally, in addition to the Uh, carrier deployments that we do to the Persian Gulf and the Western Pacific, and can drive a need for a carrier force with as many as 16 carriers, uh, which is five more than what the law now requires the Navy to have. Um, That is a number, I think, that will probably catch a lot of people's eye as they read the report. And so I think it's important to make uh, one or two comments about that. One is that uh, if the nation were to decide to devote the resources to building up the carrier force, it would take a long time many years, decades really, before you were to get to that 16 carrier force, and I can go into the details of that. Uh, Even if you were to build carriers uh, much more quickly than we uh, do today, it would take a very long time to get there. So, if you cannot get there quickly, and you have something like only an 11 carrier force, but you still want to now emphasize operations in the European theater such as the Mediterranean by having a carrier presence there while not reducing your carrier presence elsewhere, how do you do that with an 11 carrier force? Well, one possible option for doing that is to homeport a carrier in the Mediterranean. Now, many people in this room are aware that we have a carrier homeported in Japan, and that this has been the case since the early to mid-1970s. What's much less remembered is that we have that carrier in Japan, and have done so for the last 40-something years, because it was part of an initiative that was carried out at the time that contemplated homeporting carriers in both Japan and Greece. We were going to set up a carrier home port uh, at Piraeus, which is the port of Athens. And in fact, we were in the midst of implementing that project. We had uh, already sent some of the surface combatants in that battle group to Piraeus. But then there was a military coup in Greece. And in response to that coup, the United States decided that it no longer wanted to go through with the plan of establishing that carrier home port. if it had not been for that coup in Greece, we might be here today talking about a very familiar situation of having a carrier home in Japan and another one home ported, uh, somewhere in the Mediterranean. Well, that option is still available to us. It's not a perfect option. Forward homeporting of ships has certain risks and costs associated with it, which we can talk about later if you want. But it is an option. It doesn't have to be Greece. It could be one of our other allies in the area, such as Italy uh, or Spain or even France. And some people on occasion have mentioned the possibility of homeporting Navy ships at Haifa uh, uh, in Israel. So uh, these are various possibilities, and again, not a perfect But if you wanted to move to a three-hub system for carrier deployments where you're maintaining carrier presence in all three of these areas and you still have only 11 carriers and you're not able to change that number very quickly over time, then carrier home is one option that might be considered. Now, in terms of options, I mentioned earlier that the Navy is looking at various alternatives. We don't know what they are because the Navy has been very tight-lipped about the study itself. The Hudson Institute report also tried to look at alternatives and examine them. Uh, You can't look at every alternative in a report of the length that you have here with the Hudson Institute report. Some things um, you need to leave out. And there was one option that was not included in the Hudson report, and it was one that was mentioned by Trip Barber in an article that he wrote about a year ago. Now Tripp used to be, and for many years was, the Navy's chief force planner, and anyone who knows Tripp Barber will tell you that he really knows what he's talking about. So when he wrote an article that did suggest an alternative to today's current large uh, large debt carrier that is not quite the same as anything that was studied in the Hudson Institute report, uh, then that is something that uh, I think some attention can be paid to. It doesn't mean that anything in the Hudson Institute report is invalid. You could look at this idea and decide that it's still not as good as today's large debt carrier. So uh, it doesn't necessarily invalidate, but it is a reminder that not every alternative that is out there can be studied studied uh, in a report the length of the Hudson Institute report. Now, the report recognizes that it's not just the carrier and its air wing, but a larger system that must be analyzed um, with a lot of moving pieces, and that's hard. And the report did try, I think, uh, to encompass quite a, a lot of these things. Well, As one element of that system, that larger system of things to be looked at, the report notes. The recent press accounts about China having air-to-air missiles that can outrange U.S. air-to-air missiles and how this disadvantages Navy strike fighters and how one response to that can be the development of a new U.S long-range air-to-air missile. This is something that might be a matter of particular focus to policymakers, and the option of developing a new long-range air-to-air missile has been in my report on uh, China's naval modernization effort and what it might mean for our Navy for some time. As another element of this larger system, the report focuses on things that are often overlooked in other analyses, like the Navy's underway replenishment ships or the ability to reload vertical launch system cells at sea. The report offers a particular concept of operations that Brian sketched out for you very briefly uh, in his presentation. Um, And I think that's important because a lot of reports only look at hardware. They don't look at concepts of operations. Um, And so this report, again, is looking at something that a lot of other studies tend to overlook. Now, the concept itself uh, that Brian outlined is interesting. I don't know if it's the best operating concept. I don't have the modeling and simulation capacity. to do any kind of analysis on that. But even if modeling and wargaming by those people who can do that sort of thing suggests that it perhaps is not the greatest con-op, that doesn't mean that the idea of developing aircraft and weapons with longer ranges, which is a main point of the report elsewhere, might uh, not make sense. You might still want to do that even under uh, a different concept of operations. And even with this concept, uh, it's worth remembering that at the start of a possible conflict, it's very possible that foreign deployed Navy forces are going to find themselves well inside China's A2-AD perimeter at the start of the conflict. So we don't have the option of assuming that everything is going to be out on the edge. There may be some Navy ships that are very far inside that uh, because that's where they were on day one. I want to finish with one comment about A2AD. A lot of the discussion about that is driven by advancements in adversary weapons, things like anti-ship cruise missiles and especially the anti-ship ballistic missiles. The ASBMs are often referred to as game-changers, but being a game-changer doesn't mean you're invincible. The Navy has faced game-changing weapons in the past and has developed counters to them. So just because something is new doesn't mean it can't be beaten. You have to work hard to figure out how to beat it, but you can do it. This is something we haven't had to think about needing to do for a long time. Again, during the quarter century of the post-Cold War era, we didn't have these kinds of things uh, uh, thrown up against us as challenges. We need to get back in the habit of saying, yeah, it's a challenge, but that doesn't mean we can't overcome it. And one other thing as well, a lot of people talk about these game changers in terms of the adversary's weapons. But there can be game changers on our side as well. And there are some game changers in surface ship defensive weapons that factor into this discussion about surface ship survivability, including the carrier. The report mentions one of them, which is lasers, but there's also railgun and the hypervelocity projectile. The report discusses possibly putting lasers on, but there's also these other two weapons as well. And in one of my own recent CLS reports, I talk about all three of these things. So when you have a discussion about game changers in A to AD, remember that the potential for changing the game isn't only on the other side. We have the ability to, to change the game as well in our own way. And this report that I talked about, uh, about these three technologies, is one example of how Uh, we can do something on our side to uh, change the equation as
0: well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, There's time for questions and answers too. (laughs) Uh, If...
5: sort of a comment, it's a very very narrow comment, it's going to make Brian cringe because it's one of those narrow comments that's not mostly focused of the report, but I just simply want to disagree, Mr. Walton, with your comment, that it was mostly the Runfeld administration's change that caused the cost growth of the CVN uh, 78 program. Profoundly disagree with that. In 2002, the Navy was on record estimating that ship, the CBN X1, at $7.6 billion. Uh, A few years later, they had risen that estimate to $10.5 billion when they had blended some but not all of what was going to be in CBN X2 into the CVN 21 program. That may remained a stable price for about three or four years, and then we saw some subsequent cost growth up to $12.9 billion thereafter. You, it, it's not to say that there isn't some attributable to that, but you have to look at the fact that there was uh, poor cost of mis- estimating on a part of the Navy. That $10.5 billion number at one point was on a confidence interval that the Navy admitted was like 40 per- less than 40 percent. There were shipbuilder problems. So it, it's, I just don't want to let that, what I consider to be a myth, uh, go unanswered. Thank Is that you.
2: microphone on? I
6: think
5: so. yes. Okay. All right. well, thank you very much for your, your comment. I agree
3: that that there are multiple factors. Geo had an excellent report last week uh, looking at the Ford class program and what were the reasons for that cost growth. And uh, one of the reasons was, uh, I think, the immature technology, concurrent design that they spoke to, and I think it was that 2002 decision. Uh, another major reason um, was uh, the poor estimating, as you referenced, uh, and. Uh, if I remember, were, the GOO report says the shipbuilder told the Navy it would be 22% more than the Navy estimated. And now at $12.9 billion, I think 22% more would have been $12.8 billion. So the shipbuilder is almost 100% accurate in terms of what the final cost would be. Yet the Navy, for reasons of politics here on the Hill, or for other reasons that, you know, as we look at the shipbuilding budget, probably hasn't been historically accurate in its estimates, <laughs> um, chose not to follow that more prudent estimate. But thank you for your comment.
0: Other questions? I see a hand in the back. Uh, if you would be so good as to identify yourself and uh, your organization, that would be helpful for the rest of the Yes, okay. my name is Hermes Levy, I'm from OWS, and I have a general question as to what happened if there is any study of, can you uh, comment on how we get to being the first uh, most powerful military power to where we are today, what are the mechanisms that happen to bring us to the situation we are in today? Thank you. Um,
2: what happened to put us in a position, um, our position of dominance in the world had its sunset, or at least, uh, I mean, we, the, the winning of the Cold War, the end of the Cold War was, a, was an amazing event in world history. It left the world in a... Very strange situation in which there was, I think mean, the f- a French foreign minister referred to the United States as a hyperpower, and and we got used to that. And we, within the Navy, I would suggest we um, we began to get comfortable with the sense that we could dominate the blue water against anyone. Um, over time, that assessment has become less and less valid, as others. Saw that dominance as the thing that sets our military apart. Our ability to project power thousands of miles from our own shore is something that no one else can do, and that that ability is due to our naval and aerospace dominance. Others have decided to contest it at the same time that. Um, our, our society has become uh, less willing at least uh, less willing to bear the costs of peacetime military dominance. I think that's probably about what puts us where we are today
0: Yes
7: Adam Siegel Brian has put my note to you it's nice to see somebody actually trying to say these are how many carriers we want we need rather than saying you know, fighting hard for 10 or fighting hard for 11. So it's good to see a report like that. But when we look at 16, first of all, we're at 10-ish, soon to be at 11. How many decades is your analysis of how the ship, and what would it require in the shipbuilding environment to get to a 16? Secondly, not discussed in the report, I haven't read closely, but I did glance at it um, over the past couple of days. What's the rest of the Navy that surrounds it? If we're going from 11, 10, and a half, 11 carriers, to 16. What do you see as a requirement in ship numbers? What sort of addition? (laughs) Is it the Navy of today, just plus five carriers? Is it 20 more logistics ships, no other changes? What's the change across the Navy in size and structure? I I can do
2: the first part. Please do. Adam, I can do the, uh, the first part of that, which is, what is the shipbuilding and when do you get there, depending on the shipbuilding rate? And Eric and I conferred about this to make sure that our results were consistent with one another. Um, if you were to change the carrier building rate, which is currently one every five years, referred to as five-year centers, and you were to accelerate that all to one per year, and do one carrier per year for seven years in a row. And I'm not sure the industrial base could execute that, but just for the purpose of discussing it, uh, if the industrial base could execute that without any delays and backlogs, you would get to a 16-carrier force by about 2030. If you were to build a carrier every other year, which is a little bit more plausible as something that the industrial base could execute, you would get there by about 2040. And if you were to do three-year centers, a carrier every three years, you would get there sometime in the 2060s. So it would take a very long time under two- or three-year centers uh, to get to that number, which is why I went into that discussion of what could you do in the meantime if your objective was three-hub carrier presence and you really only had more or less the number that we have today. Your larger question. The first thing I want to say is, um, in the study, and I and I use the words very carefully. um, We're not saying we're not. I don't. I'm not interested in whether the country can afford 16 carriers. That's not my. I wanted to lay out how many we needed, how many we would need to fill three combat hubs continuously and indefinitely. Again, words chosen very carefully. And those words have meanings. Gaps would not be permitted. So that drives you to, relatively quickly, using my history major math, to 16 carriers. Do I think this country is going to start on a path to building 16 carriers? Probably not. Should the country get the water over and start building more, get us to a point where we can can more often than not to have credible combat power stationed forward in three hubs Heck yeah, we ought to what does that maybe look like Adam? probably 350 to 400 ships um, They would be different. I am a big fan of something Henry uh, or Jerry Hendricks talks about um, quite a bit which is uh, which are small heavily armed fast patrol vessels that aren't necessarily um giant killers but they are uh, they are um, ships that make other nations think twice about where you are and what's over the horizon to back them up um i I don't i don't think i'm prepared to go through uh, the 350 to 400 ship fleet architecture yet (laughs) uh, but i will soon Uh, one thing
4: i just threw in there um with the three hub presence is that we could also think about how to use the big deck anthibs as part of that um, that gets a little bit to Tripp Barber's point that, you know, we have these other aircraft carriers. They aren't Ford class, um, but they can still
2: project air power. They can project air power, but they are not aircraft carriers. They are combat systems that are optimized for the projection of power in the hands of an 18-year-old rifleman. Their job is to support Marines. They cannot accommodate the very basic aircraft that, in my view, Really makes an aircraft carrier, and that is a large aperture ISR platform. Until we can create a situation where we can put an E-2 or an E-2-like vehicle on those aviation assault ships, <laughs> I will steadfastly deny they are aircraft carrier.
0: Yeah, and uh, the <laughs> corollary point here is that we're not talking so much about uh, how to get there well, that's part of this, but uh, this section, or the, the three-head idea, is based on what's actually needed. Um, and the, the way to reach it, that's open to discussion. Um, but if we're going to address – if we're going to try to address the question that the gentleman in the back asked about what's happened to uh, American military power, Uh, The recommendations, the ideas in this report are answers to
2: the issue of how do we retain the position that we had. Can I have my nickel back? Yes. But Bob is right. We can use those ships to project power more effectively. And if we can't get the 16 carriers that I believe the country needs, we have to find a way to more effectively use them. this is one of the reasons that we are hawking single naval battle in this, in this report, because that platform is part of uh, the, the idea that, that you're going to put really capable F-35s on that ship and have them do air to mud almost exclusively is insane. Those, those airplanes should be used for much, much more than that. And that's something that Navy and the Marine Corps are busily trying to work out.
8: Uh, Robbie Harris here, a former naval person. Uh, congratulations to Seth, Brian, and Tim for a report. Uh, honestly, I have not read it yet, but I think I know what it says based on today. And I will indeed read it. Um, I'm thinking of Barney Rubel's paper from last week or week before. And uh, at the risk of speaking for Barney, uh, I would say that Barney's Bonnie's point is that it's not a question of if carriers or not, but it's a question of how many carriers and how are those carriers used. Uh, regarding the, how many and how they're used, uh, it, he, he talks to, in essence, of a supply-demand problem. Uh, the supply issue is uh, we don't have enough carriers, uh, given the way that they're employed today and, and the way we in, intend to use them today. But there's also the the demand problem that Barney talks about at, at some length. Uh, Barney reflects on the days before uh, Gwede and Nichols, in which there was a sink pack fleet and there was a sink land, and both of them were Navy admirals, and largely, largely they controlled how the uh, how the uh, demand signal was answered with supply. Uh, I, I guess maybe Barney is dreaming of a world in which Navy you know, controls the, uh, the supply problem. Uh, react, they, Navy controls the demand and therefore has some control over the supply uh, of, of the carriers. Now, I think Barney is dreaming if he thinks that world is going to exist again. Uh, but I think he does raise a good point about the demand signal and that the demand signal is excessive. And I guess the first question would be, do you agree that the demand signal is excessive? And if it is, what would you do about it? Um, mean clearly, you know, combined commands
4: drive the demand, and the services are the the force provider when we try to meet the demand. I think when it comes to carriers, I, mean, I think demand is pretty limited. I mean, it's for two hubs, one in the Pacific and one in the uh, IO and Persian Gulf. So what what less do you want? Um, I think the question becomes, are there... Right. Um, now, we can talk about other units and whether or not demand signals too high for those, and that's a fair question. Um, but then you get into, other ways we could do it? differently with either more uh, forward basing, as um, Ron has suggested, um, or thinking differently about the oak plants, uh, which really drives to me, because then you're talking about what is the surge force, um, and that's where I think there's a lot more room for creative thinking about how we project power differently, including how we use the aircraft carrier.
2: Oh, one quick comment. In terms of policy maker demands for carriers, um, I'm not sure how widely it is understood among policymakers just how expensive it is for the Navy to maintain a carrier continuously on station in the Persian Gulf, Northern Arabian Sea area. Uh, doing that while staying within your operational cycle and your purse temple limits can require seven or more carriers to keep one continuously on station in that area. So when policymakers might say, well, I'd like to have two there, if you were to try to sustain that indefinitely on a long-term basis without resorting to lengthy deployments that go beyond your limits or breaking the operational cycle and and deferring maintenance, you would need a 14-carrier force for that. And so when you ask, are the demands excessive, um, there's a dimension to that about, whether the policy makers understand the strain that it can place on the Navy to ask for something. And uh, uh, right now, we're able to have these two hubs with an 11 carrier force because we have a carrier home ported in Japan and it reduces the station keeping multiplier for keeping a carrier in the Western Pacific from the five or six that it would be if you were to do it with uh, US-based carriers down to one or two. The majority of the remaining carrier force is for maintaining that one carrier in the Indian Ocean, Persian Gulf region. That very lopsided math is not obvious to people when they just look at the situation. And that may lead them to think that sending a carrier to the Persian Gulf is not as expensive in terms of the uh, burden it places on the carrier force over the long run if you were to try to maintain it as, in fact, it is. Uh, So people ask, well, we're going to have this gap Uh, in the carrier presence in the Persian Gulf and so on. In my view, a lot of that is um, the system just catching up with itself, because there were times when we were trying to maintain more than one carrier in the Persian Gulf, Indian Ocean region, while still having the Western Pacific, while still having only 11 carriers. The way we did that was by lengthening deployments, putting the burden on the ship's crews, and perhaps by deferring maintenance and training requirements as well. You can do that for a while but it will eventually catch up with you. And the gaps that people are talking about in carrier presence, in my view, can be viewed as a manifestation of that process catching up with itself and, re- and, and the system needing to reset itself to something that is more sustainable and long term.
8: Uh,
0: why Robbie. I it's also important, when discussions like this move to questions of excessive, that adjective excessive, to point out that the people who determine what is excessive and not are the ones who vote. And if there is an understanding that there's a problem, then what is excessive today, tomorrow, becomes something that's necessary. Um, So, it's a question of, ultimately, political will. Um, And that goes back to the issue that I referred to a moment ago um, was raised by the gentleman in the back. Let me do a real quick one. Um, There's a lot to like in Barney Rubel's article. There's a lot to like in most everything
2: Barney Rubel writes. But Barney Rubel did what virtually every other navalist in this town and others do in this debate, and they, and they take it as an article of faith that we are nose over, that he, he, he leads one of his paragraphs. We're never going to go back to the days of the 15 carrier force, yada, yada, yada. When he says that, and when he says it like that, in my view, I read someone who is saying, how are we going to more effectively use more limited resources? That's, a, that's an honorable position, and we have to have smart people who think that way. I'm alone. We need more. We need more money for more presence and more combat power because our responsibilities have not declined. In fact, they have increased. And so I, when I read Barney's art, I, I looked at, said, this is a very straightforward and very common sense and enlightening piece, but it goes all the way from A to y. The y to Z is we need more. Thanks. Let me
4: just put not one thing on this about wanting more and the presence piece. Um, a, a lot of that depends on in the future is is on the ability of the carrier to actually project power. And for all the reasons that have been talked about today and talked about in the report, absent changes to the carrier air wing, the ability of the carrier to do that is going to decline. Um, so this is deadly serious about the operational and strategic relevance of the aircraft carrier. And and. And it's not the carrier itself that the question hinges on, but rather the composition of the carrier air wing. And at the end of the day, you know, we can get into all the details, but longer range, more survivability off the carrier deck,
7: period.
6: Uh, yes, I'm Russell King. I was former, formerly surface line on the aircraft carrier Midway, 1979 to 82. And um, I, I was reading uh, Michael Pillsbury's book, The 100-Year Marathon. I believe Mr. Pillsbury is associated with Hudson. And um, he's, he's speaking about China's 100-year plan, plan to supplant the United States as the world's superpower. And I believe Pillsbury might have been involved in some war games. I think they were naval war games. And when the United States and China are pitted against each other using basic are strategic psychological concepts, we would win every time, but Pillsbury played the part of the Chinese using Chinese strategy and won, won the war game, I believe. And also in, in political strategy and the economic strategy, you, you might uh, note that China has fewer budgetary problems uh, modernizing the military thanks to the U.S consumer. So um, uh, But I'm wondering how, how much do you factor in the psychology of the Chinese when you're pitting us against the Chinese in, in, in the conflict?
3: It's an interesting question. I haven't read. Um book, but, but it's received a lot of press here in Washington. Um, the, the psychological component that you refer to, I think, is critical. Uh, at the end of the day, the perception of the localized correlation of forces is what matters. Whether China knows it's superior or the US and its allies are superior in the region at any one time. And there's a material component to that. But there's also the fact of perception. So we in the U.S. government, or not in the U.S. government now, but the U.S. government as a whole, we need to think more deeply about how we strategically communicate to our partners, allies, but also adversaries regarding what are our capabilities, uh, so that the Chinese know today is not the day to start conflict. And trying to do a better job of that not only with the Department of Defense, with the patrols we conduct, with capabilities we demonstrate, but also with the State Department, intelligence community, sta- uh, and other components of the force is necessary moving forward. And Michael would agree
0: with that. I think I'd rather have our problems. Uh, we have time for one more question, Paul. Uh,
2: before I start, I
0: want Thanks. Paul Giero from Global Strategies and
2: Transformation. Before I start, I want you to know, I think what you did is great. It's fabulous. It's only a first step. And I I have a recommendation and a question, and I don't want the recommendation to take away from the question, so I'm going to tell you the recommendation first, which is this is so complex and requires this kind of free-flowing conversation and back and forth and what if, and you forgot this, and oh, we can't do that. Yes, we can, that you need to give the Navy a rain check. There's only one uniform officer in the room. He's got- Civilian clothes. Gu- okay. But thank you for making my point. Um, so my question is this. It seems to me that there's an intellectual and moral disconnect in this conversation. Because when the time comes for the Chinese and others to consider whether or not today is the day, they're not going to be impressed by peacetime hubs. They're not going to be impressed by Um, calculations of days on station. They're going to be impressed by warfighting capability, and so I think that in the study, some of the most valuable product was the view of different ways of warfighting. The biggest World War II Navy um, innovation was the multi-carrier task group. The Japanese had it figured out on day one. It took us almost two years to get that organized. This gives great synergy, and you've talked about that. But that's different than peacetime hubs. Ostensibly, we're a global navy. Ostensibly, I say. So how many theaters, based on what you, Brian, and and Tim, and Seth have come up with uh, with this war fighting doctrine, how many theaters can be maintained on a war footing and in that theatre, in those theatres, in each of those theatres, how many maritime fronts can be maintained. Because this is a way to back into what the real number is. And whether or not we can improve the carrier force so that it remains relevant, I think we can if we want to, but we can't think about it until we get to those kinds of numbers. I believe that's the subject for unclassified conversations. And that's why I made my recommendation about the rain check for the Navy. So, how many theaters and how many fronts I'll, I'll spot your 12 carriers? I don't think I'm going to do the analysis on the fly. I would have to sit down and think about that. I'd, I've when I look at when I look at the analysis that that I did that Tim and Seth did, that says 16, it was from the concept of peacetime hubs. And you you can malign them, if you like, um, but what I see them as are way stations to war. They are what provide naval forces with the deterrent, the presence and deterrent and warfighting response Um, gradient that favors forward-deployed maritime power rather than what's sitting in in Norfolk or San Diego. So the degree to which you are able to position credible combat power forward in three uh, important places to our national interest is the degree to which the Navy can swing forces to generate the necessary power in the theater where actual war is happening.
4: As long as there's survival
2: as long as they're civilized. Well, I mean, I think it probably goes for all of our armed forces, but, yeah. No, survival forward. No. Oh. I'm not
7: in the light anything. I agree with you, just
2: that the next step has to be, what does this really mean, right, in terms of numbers and capacity and? I think that's fair. It's kind of why I said. I need to think about it.
0: Uh, thank you all for joining us today. It was a very useful discussion. Uh, I'd like to thank our panelists as well. Um, And uh, I think it's safe to say that we will continue this. Thank
4: you
7: (laughs) all.